Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. We also cover craft, the agent hunt, query trenches, publishing industry, marketing, and more. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com. And make sure to visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog for additional interviews, query critiques, and more at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar. Today's guest is T. Jefferson Parker, the best-selling author of 13 standalone noir crime novels, as well as three separate series featuring the characters Mercy Rayborn, Charlie Hood, and his latest, Roland Ford. He joined me today to talk about knowing when it's time to create a new character, as well as the bittersweetness of leaving an old one behind. The Carnival at Bray meets West Side Story in Sarah Carlson's powerful YA debut, set in post-conflict Belfast, Northern Ireland. Fiona and Denny seek to understand their family's pasts. They must choose between their dreams and the people they aspire to be. All the Walls of Belfast by Sarah Carlson. We're here to talk about The Last Good Guy, which is your third book in the Roland Ford series. So you've created quite a few series that focus on an individual investigator. So when do you know that it's time to create a new one? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have I have written, uh, I guess, three series now about different uh, heroines and heroes. I feel like sometimes the character has, has reached her or his maximum level of entertainment value. They want their job to be done. They have, you know, reached a point in the series of books where the reader will feel satisfied that they know that character well enough and it's time to, you know, move on to another one. I think essentially, as long as I'm deeply interested in the character, then I always feel like there's going to be another book in there. And at some point, it's going to be time to say, that's enough. I'm going to end this and I'm going to go on to the next character. Do you ever miss the ones that you've walked away from? Yeah, I do. Sometimes the ones that I walk away from or, or characters who, who die at the end of the book, you know, I miss them and I go, gosh, I wish she was still here. I wish he was still here. In terms of the character, the, the series leaders, Roland or like Charlie Hood or Mercy Rayborn, I do miss them when they're gone. And when people, I, I go to book signings and do tours and stuff and they ask about, are you going to write about Silent Joe again? Yeah, I know I'm not. And yet I always say, well, you know, probably not, but I'd kind of like to. And that's, and that's true. Yeah, absolutely. I have uh, characters in some of my own books that have open endings, and people will say, are you going to write another one? I want to know what happens. I mean, more than likely, no, I'm probably not going to return to that series because that particular genre is no longer a viable genre, um, but that's a horrible answer to a reader. <laughs> it is, it is. That's the writer's answer. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's an industry answer, yeah. whereas I'm, they're asking me about a character that they care about as a human being and yeah. i'm and i'm and i'm just like well you know the money just isn't there so 
Yeah, and you want to be with that character. You want the, your readers to ask about those characters and go, well, what about Mercy or what about Joe or whatever? You got them where you want them, and it's just so nice to have characters that people care about, and then you can't do what they want, which is to bring them back again because you're doing something else. I mean, I literally stopped writing Mercy Rayborn books. I wrote three of them. Well, it was only three, but still, it's a lot of writing about one character. I literally stopped that series, brought that series to a halt, so that I could write Silent Joe, which was a story that just sort of presented itself to me. And I saw this character had to write this book, and, and, and I had to say goodbye to Mercy in order to write that book. And, and then that book led to another book. There's too many good characters to get to, it seems. And you do have to follow inspiration. Once you have it, ignoring it is folly. No, you can't, because, no. <laughs> As you know, I mean, that's what gets you through the year of work that it takes you to write one of these books. It takes a long time, and you need lots of inspiration to keep you at work. Coming up, the importance of setting in fiction and how to create a place readers want to return to. Authors, are you looking for a surefire way to sell more copies of your book? Teachers are a huge market for writers. YA and middle grade author Rachel Alpine can help you reach them with her Common Core Aligned Teacher Guides. Rachel has over 15 years of teaching experience and knows just what teachers want and need to be able to use your book in their classroom. She's designed over 75 teacher guides for published authors and would love to create one for you. Check out her guides on her website and use the contact tab for a quote at www.rachelalpine. That's R-A-C-H-E-L-E-A-L-P-I-N-E dot com. I want to talk about setting a little bit. You are a California native, and all of your books reflect that. So you have just a deep California roots in, in all of the books, and the setting is really imperative often to everything that is going on. I mean, not only as a backdrop, but also as a character itself in many ways. So if you could talk about that for a little bit, I've always found uh, literature of place very highly compelling. Yeah, me too. Me too. As a reader, you know, my first demand is, is I want to know where I am, what day it is, what time it is, what's going on, where I am geographically. You know, I don't care where. I just want to have a really firmly rooted grasp of, of where I'm at. And, uh, and as a writer, um, I've found over my many years of doing this that I, I really love um, writing about where I am. So my first few books um, take place in, in Laguna Beach, California, where I was living at the time that I wrote them, and then a couple about Newport Beach, California, and then Tustin, California. These are all places I've lived, and then uh, a little bit in L.A., and then when I moved down here to San Diego County, uh, to Fallbrook, uh, almost 20 years ago, my books followed south, you know, down into San Diego County and down into Fallbrook, where I live now. I love being able to, to go out into my little town, I live in Fallbrook now, and look at the streets and the people and talk to people and do my errands and do my stuff and see the, the, the Marines from Pendleton, which is right next door, coming and going to our wars and stuff and talking to them. I, I love being able to, to make that this little town real, you know, and it, it really informs the books. You know, the setting is so important, and, and as you said, it's, it's not just window dressing. It's, it's the fabric of the life that you're living here and uh, reflecting the world around you. In a small town like this, you get to write about the world around you through the small town's eyes, if you will, and I, and I, I treasure that. I think it's something that, that readers like. I think I like this place, even if they've never been here. 
I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Ohio. It's interesting to me how often I see country life, especially the Midwest and also Appalachia, represented completely inaccurately. You say California, and at least as a Midwesterner, you automatically have an idea, and it might be wrong. So do you see California, or especially small-town California, represented inaccurately in books, movies, television? Yeah, good question. You know, uh, California is really a whole bunch of, of little tiny microcosms all same place at the same time. My California, if you will, Fallbrook, okay, it's San Diego County, 37,000 people. We call ourselves the, the avocado capital of the world, proudly. And uh, we have lots of citrus and avocados and commercial nurseries. It's a fragrant, floral little place, woodsy uh, Homes are kind of tucked away, um, and, and it's very much a mom-and-pop town. It's not a bunch of franchises. Joe's Hardware, bicycle shop that specializes in, in bicycles and vacuum cleaners. <laughs> and it's this quirky, <laughs> this quirky little world that I live in, you know, which is completely unrelated to Los Angeles, even though Los Angeles is only an hour and a half drive from here. So, so to answer your question, I think a lot of the writers I know are neighbors. I know Don Winslow, and I know Mike Connolly, and I know Robert Craze. And those guys write about their little pockets of California, I think really brilliantly. So I don't often read a novel that I go, oh, God, that's, that's nothing like it really is. Mm-hmm. I, I think for the most part, people writing about California are, are getting their little portion of it. I was usually right. wrong. Um, and I say that is like from a really small town, like population 2000. When I see it represented, and I'm a farmer's daughter, grew up farming. Farming is never right, ever, (laughs) in the movies. I have a huge problem with the way cornfields are represented. They love the way it looks, but they're never doing it right. The cinematic shot of the green corn is beautiful and everyone loves it, but they're never interacting with it appropriately, like, ever. (laughs) That's a crack-up, Mindy. You know, my mother was a farmer's daughter, only child, uh, and she grew up in Kenton, Ohio. Grandma and Grandpa May, uh, Elmer and May, were corn farmers, so I know exactly what you're talking about in the cornfield. There isn't really nothing quite like a cornfield when you're out in it. Basically, you know, they have uh, animal wranglers and gun wranglers for movies. They need to bring a farmer in sometime. <laughs> they should. They should. They should, because they're doing you could go a good guy. The book features white supremacy. So it's timely, but unfortunately it's also evergreen. Did the news cycle inspire you at all with this, or was this uh, an idea that had been cooking? You know, it's an idea that had been cooking forever in my little brain pan, and I've written about it before. I kind of hatched this book around the time the Charlottesville protest turned deadly. Mm-hmm. I've always been interested in hate and, you know, white supremacy and, and any version of that kind of thinking. Growing up in Southern California, you know, weirdly enough, Southern California is correctly known as a liberal bastion, but, but back to the idea of little microcosms living together, you know, there's, also, there's a long and sort of infamous uh, string of white supremacists uh, who have lived and operated and agitated from Southern California, from San Diego County, where I live, from Fallbrook, where I live. I mean, there's a notorious one. Yeah, I've always been interested in those, those people and, and what they do. They make great bad guys, and what they're doing is, is timely, unfortunately. It, it is evergreen. Now, I mean, they're up to it again. It's in the, just open the news and check it out, and there they are. I'm curious about your research. So when you're researching something that is obviously difficult, I have a duty as a writer to get into the mind frame 
of even your villains. Yeah. So, you know, how, how does that research work when you're dealing with something that is, you know, uncomfortable? I don't feel uncomfortable when I brush up against those kind of people mm -hmm. and those kind of ideas. Some people scare me. I've, I've been to supermax prisons and talked to people in those prisons, and they scare the living daylights out of me, and there's bars between us. These, these kind of organized, you know, haters, political extremists and stuff, can, I can tolerate that. I, I don't finish the book feeling like I blighted myself. You know, I mean, I've written about some really dark people back mid-career. I wrote some really scary books, a couple of them. I, I literally felt like, you know, taking a hot shower at the end of the day after I'd spent eight hours creating these characters and telling these stories. And it left a, you know, a bristlingly sort of bad feeling on my skin. I don't feel that way anymore. Maybe it's just because I'm older and feel a little tougher. And so much of the research I, I do now is, is online and it's videos. And people are so eager now, you know, to reveal themselves and to tell you what they're doing. I mean, you can go online and see anybody doing anything at any time practically. You know, I mean, you can watch cartel torture if you want to. There's that distance, too, I think. You know, I'm seeing these people, listening to these people, these, these haters, kind of BS philosophy that they that spout on about. I feel like I can take it now. I don't feel quite so, so tainted by it all. And it's interesting, too, you mentioned doing the research online. You have a fourth wall. You know, there's a screen. You know that it's real, but at the same time, you're watching a screen. And so even though yeah. it is very different from sitting across from someone and talking to them about their activities or their past. Yes, it is. I think it's interesting talking about dark topics and diving into... The research, my most recent book is about the uh, the opioid crisis. So I'm like, hey, you know, we've got the internet. And boy, you're right. You, you really can find anyone doing anything. I did so much research and was simultaneously highly alarmed at how easy it was for me as a novice to learn so much about how to do like step-by-step -step YouTube videos about how to tie off and find a vein and um so grateful for those as a writer and yet disturbed as a human yeah i totally hear you mindy I, I, i've been there too yeah and people you know ask me similar questions uh how do you write such dark topics you know the truth is it doesn't bother me either <laughs> and yeah. so when yeah. i answer the question that way sometimes i'm like oh did that do i sound a little off now doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> yeah, uh, you, you can't really say that. And it's, it's, it's not quite true, but I, I know what you mean. But you're a reporter in, in a lot of ways. I think all, all of us novelists, I mean, we're creating stories. At heart, we're kind of journalists, and we're, we're, we kind of have a, a cold eye for, for the facts. Yeah, very true. I feel very much more like a funnel than anything. Things pass through it. They don't stay inside. Lastly, what has changed in publishing over time and how to stay invigorated as a writer. Make your pages look professional with vellum. Margins, headers, page numbering, font, line spacing, all happen automatically with every book you create. Generate eBooks for Kindle, Apple Books, Kobo, and others, or deliver a beautiful print book to your readers. Visit trivellum.com forward slash pants to learn more. Vellum. Create beautiful books. So you have been publishing for quite a while since the mid-80s, is that right? Yeah, 85, exactly. 31 years worth. You have been writing and publishing for a really long time. Um, what 
has changed for you like in the industry? The industry. This is right, right, writer to writer now, huh? Yeah. The internet has revolutionized the world, really, and certainly our jobs of you know the research that we do changed immensely. I guess more specifically, though, um, I'm proud to have seen novels, especially, but books in general have survived the digital age. We're still writing and we're still reading, and and Kindles did not take over the world, and even that's still reading, you know. And in spite of the mountains and mountains of entertainment that you can get streaming and in TVs and in movie theaters. In spite of all of that, much of which is really quite good, our little books hang in there and they survive and they move people in ways only books can. I'm proud to be a part of a, the genre that I write in, you know, the noir and the crime writing that goes back, uh, you know, maybe all the way back to Edgar Allan Poe, if you believe the scholars. I think books have, have weathered the great storm and books will be with us forever. I agree. I mean, we started with oral storytelling, passing it down, and, you know, we're still here from the creative end. Do you ever get tired? Are you ever worn out? Yeah, I get tired. I get tired. Um, but I got to admit, Mindy, I really kind of like what I do. Mm-hmm. I always tell students this, uh, young people, you know, writing, if you want to be a writer, don't forget that writing should be fun. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean fun all the time. I don't mean fun all day. I don't mean every day. But I mean, there, there has to be a point where you write a sentence and you sit back and look at it and go, that is a good sentence, and I take satisfaction in doing that, you know, and a good sentence becomes a good page, and a good page becomes a good chapter, and the draw of creativity, you know, that funny state you get in as a writer where you're funneling, just like you said, you know, you're funneling things from the outside, mashing it through your brain, and then your fingers, and then onto the screen, and then onto the page, is, is really kind of magical, and, and I like that a lot. Um, it's exhausting to, for me, get to the point where I can begin writing a book. The hardest part of writing for me is not writing. You know, yep. when I'm sitting around trying to hatch a story idea, make a story work, you know, in my brain, and, and okay, I know I got Roland, and he lives here in Fallbrook, and he's going to get another case, and, you know, what's it going to be? What am I going to do, you know? And I'll spend weeks and months in that weird state. You probably do, too. You're waiting for the story to coagulate just enough so that you can begin writing it. And once I begin writing, then I'm pretty happy. Yeah, it's true. I get tired of being behind my screen so much, almost in a meditative state when you are writing. And it, um, you know, it cuts you off from the outside world when your good writing happens, but it also cuts you off from other people can make me a little bit unhappy if I am stuck inside in my own mind in front of a laptop. But when I'm not it's writing... It's antisocial, there's no doubt. Yeah. Oh, yes, definitely <laughs> antisocial. When I'm not writing, I'm also very grumpy and unhappy. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> Can't win either way. <laughs> no, you have to get it out or else, uh, you know, it's, it'll explode. So that's, it's just a, a process thing for me, and it sounds like it's similar for you. So I'm going to let you go because I know you've got another interview lined up. Okay, well, it's been really good talking to you, Mindy. Congrats on your success. You're Edgar, and just very Thank cool. You. Yes, thank you so much. And congrats to you and this uh, new series. I'll be diving into those. This new one is, uh, as a writer, I think it will grab you on page one when you read it. Anyway, have fun. Awesome. Thank you so much. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, 
please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar.